all, welcome to Black Women Voices, episode three. We are so excited that you are here today on this journey as we talk, discuss, and uplift each other. So today we're going to be talking about intersectionality. Many people have talked about it, theorized. We are going to be including that in our discussion today. So our guest is Dr. Arkey. She identifies as an educator, an activist, and an organizer. She is an intersectional feminist scholar with expert knowledge and skills to develop, implement, facilitate, and evaluate um, curricula that promote institutional equity. In addition, she is the founding curator of the San Kofa Circle. We're so excited that you all have joined us on this journey of sisterhood and scholarly resistance in the academy. So today we are talking about intersectionality. It's a term that many of us have used, we're theorizing from, we hear it, but it's really good. We really wanted to have a conversation about it and connect not only the theory, but connect it into practice in the ways that we operate within um, these institutions of higher education. So the beautiful thing, we have a phenomenal, amazing scholar, Dr. Arkey, um, that we are interviewing today. We're excited to hear from her. We know that you will be too. And we're just wanting to kind of jump, jump right in. So kind of the first question that we have, Dr. Arkey, like, what kind of as it relates to intersectionality and all of that because there's a lot of misconceptions in terms of like what it is so let's start there let's start there so like what is intersectionality and just how do you define it all right so um first let me say hey (laughs) y'all thank you so much for having me so excited to be here um All right, so intersectionality. So I define it the way that Kimberly Crenshaw defined it in her original work in 1989. Um, It talks about the interlocking social identities and how uh, the socioeconomic power structure really folds into play with race, class, and gender. Um, So I have something here that I can read that talks about intersectionality. So the study of intersectionality seeks to understand the multiple and overlapping ways in which various biological, social, and cultural categories intersect, contributing to the perpetration of social inequality. Rooted in critical race theory, Kimberly Crenshaw uses our intersecting identities as a framework to help us explain and ultimately create a blueprint for us to dismantle systems of oppression. Um, So when we think about intersectionality, it's looking at uh, our categories of identity, not as either or, but more as a both and. So it's saying that, okay, uh, in her TED talk, she talks about the actual intersection and she shows a video, like a little cartoon video of two cars going through an intersection and what happened to the person who's in the middle. You know, we can't tell if they're harmed on the race road or if they're harmed on the gender road. And so intersectionality is a framework that widens those singular perspectives for us to be viewed as um, with beings with multiple identities and saying that it's not necessarily an additive approach. It's saying that they're all here and they're all equally rated. So, hey, right. What are we going to do now? Right. I didn't know there was a TED talk to this. Did anybody? I got yeah. a TED talk. Okay. Yeah, no. mm-hmm. There's a couple. She has an interview, but the TED talk is really informative because she like basically breaks it down. That's mm-hmm. a really good TED talk. Like she has them stand up in the beginning um, and she shows them pictures. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Where she, she talks does. about the African-American policy forum. Right, right, because she like has the pictures, or first she t- gives names, and they knew they knew the name of Eric Gardner, they knew the name of Tamia Rice, but they didn't know the names of Black women who were also victims of police um, uh, oh. violence, essentially. I, now I, I was trying to figure out which TED talk. I was like, now when you said that, that hit. Yeah, I remember that TED talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a good one. Yeah, I think it's called the urgency of intersectionality. Mm. So. Uh, Dr. Arkey, would you say that intersectionality is a methodology? 
Is it a theory or both? Like, what would you say to that? Um, I think I would agree with um, Dr. Crenshaw when she calls it a framework. So it's a framework in which we can put, we can use it to frame other things. Um, and so with my own particular research, it is a framework that I use, but the theory that I use was critical race theory. Um, uh, oh, so that brings up a great question. What is the difference between, or what would you say, between a framework and a theory? Because I think that, especially for those who are pursuing a, doc, a doctoral mm -hmm. degree, um, that is a great question. What is the difference between a framework and a theory? Okay. So I'm so glad that you asked me this question and I'm even happier that I feel like I can answer it, right? Come on, doctor. <laughs> yes, like, yes. <laughs> I'm going to shout out my homegirl who I had this conversation with, uh, Dr. June Kara Christian. Look her up, JuneCaraChristian.com. She's a dope <laughs> researcher. I can remember we was talking about theories and epistemologies and all yes. of that. Ontology. Today's ontology. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when we think about um, a theory, the theory is what is the, what is kind of already there that's driving your work. So, what is the the basis when you boil it all down? What does it come down to? And for me and my work on teacher pedagogy in the wake of Black Lives Matter, it was about race. Um, it boiled down to race because when we talk about Black Lives Matter, the uni uniting thing there is race. So that's kind of the theory, that piece where it all kind of boils down to that one critical piece. Your framework is how you're gonna set up your argument. So even though like, yeah, it all boils down to race, but people experience race differently based on those intersections then I get an opportunity to bring in those intersections to create the frame so I can stick in a little bit of queer theory, so I can stick in a little bit of hip hop, so I can stick in a little bit of feminist, right? But creating that framework says, okay, this is, this is where the strong points are and this is where these connect. And then you can fill it in with the other pieces of your research. My heart just fluttered. You literally don't even know how much you just helped me. That was phenomenal. Um, oh, thank you. I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> this was, that was good. That was good. Okay. Okay. Well, because I know people, there's a lot of articles that people have been kind of theorizing to try to connect intersectionality as a theoretical lens. Mm -hmm. um, even though we know that we know that, you know, it can, you know, the intersections kind of, you don't know kind of like where you're getting hit from the left or the right, the kind of the, the statement that she makes in her first, um, DeMar I think it was like the marginal, the, the intersections or whatever. But mm -hmm. I think I, I know how it was also explained to me is that intersectionality works well as a lens in that it kind of gives you a way to look at what's happening. So it's not necessarily having like the confined structures of, okay, so if this happens, this is what it equates. If this happens, this is what it equates, but more so the lens that you can look at that, that oppression or that marginalization that that person experiences. Is that what you think that was that what you're thinking? So I think that it's, it's like, again, it's not an either or, it's a both and. Mm. And, and mm. that's why it's dope, right? <laughs> right, that's why it's dope. Because it, we're going to say, okay, yeah, this is about Black people. But then we can turn around in the same sentence and say that being Black is not a monolithic experience, right? Mm. But, but while it's not monolithic, there are some qualifiers, Right. So it's being able to, to separate that into saying, OK, so what's the qualifier? And then, you know, what's uh, how does that affect the other identity and looking at those different qualifiers? So I think it's so when we talk intersectionality, it's for us. Right. Living in the world as black women, it's difficult to separate. That's why for them, it's so easy to box it here, box it here, shelve it here. That's because they don't live it. They don't have a, an empirical evidence like we do. Our lived experience matters. And so we, we can't talk about these things without connecting it to the, the physical feeling that we have in our bodies and the emotions that we have. Right. And so 
that's I'm I'm assuming what uh, those of you who are beginning are experiencing that dissonance with I can't engage with this stuff unless I bring my full self. But what you're giving me is telling me that I don't matter and I don't exist. <laughs> and so we're trying to figure out how to what I can't keep going with this and this is no this is no. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that brings me to something. Uh, so when you think about the intersecting identities, so what unique communities or identities do you relate to or belong to, and how does that impact you both personally and both professionally? Mm -hmm. All right, thank you for that question too. I think um, so. The one of the outcomes of my research is um, the a pedagogy for teachers, and I've named it Black Comma Feminist. And so when I think about uh, when I was going through the, the initial positionality work, defining my identities and who I was and why I was doing this work, for me, it really centered on being Black. Um, my dad was a uh, general in the Black Nationalist Army here in Cleveland in 1968 in the riots. And so that is a huge piece of my identity. Um, a lot of a lot of the work that I do in the city is an activist. I do a lot of work in my community. Um, so for me, that's what it was. And I had to be able to um, begin to say how I express that blackness. And so being a woman, I identified as feminists. And always uh, black and feminist are not um, socially congruent. People don't always see them as going together. Right. Um, and so I placed a comma in between the two and I placed the comma there um, to hold all the, you know, to hold the, the, the incongruentness of those identities, to recognize that, that I know that this seems off from the dominant narrative, but I'm using that to create a counter narrative. And the comma holds the space for all the identities um, that fall in between that that connect me to being black and to being feminist because those two are not the sum but those are the two that i choose to um identify as outwardly and so professionally in my work how does that affect me uh i get a lot of work with with women's centers mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um you know i we talk a lot about um, history and often we think about feminism in the United States. People think about Susan B. Anthony mm -hmm. and Seneca Falls. Mm -hmm. And what we're failing to realize is that that's when it was added to the canon. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. Yes. Right. Uh, we didn't have access to the canon, so we couldn't add it. But what we had access to was our mitochondrial DNA that we brought over with us however we got here. Right. Yeah. You no, know, there's two schools of thoughts. People, we were already here. We came over on the ships. However, we got here, we got it. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about tapping into that DNA and understanding that feminism in, in its true uh, definition is a practice. It's about what we do. And the first time that we heard that spoke was in 1831, Sojourner Truth, Ain't I Woman. Even uh, Maria Stewart, Maria Miller Stewart, a little mm -hmm. before that, who was the first black woman to address a mixed race group. Right. Uh, and she talked about, oh, ye daughters of Africa. Like, come on, y'all. Okay, ladies, now let's get information. I mean, we can talk to you we want, but it means <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> so, and thinking about um, feminism being a praxis, I claim feminist identity to recognize those women and to make sure that their voices and their legacies and their labor is associated with feminism. Yes. I'm not, I'm, I'm, people identify as womanist and that's cool. Like, it's not about what you say you are, it's about what you do. <laughs> Come on! So now that's it doesn't matter how you yeah. identify to be, like, now that's a word. Like, that's, let yes. me see your praxis, and that's totally like, I'll know if you're really real. Mm -hmm. So, um, that affects me professionally that way. Personally, um, just y'all know feminism is hot pop culture now, so right. you know mm -hmm. it affects you with people who socially who are not, uh, so people of color, right? Socially, who are not, um, who don't know the history of feminism, who think about it as, oh, you ain't a feminist because you like men. And it's like, wow, that's, that's not what a feminist is. But, right. you know, and so I've had to 
you know, you would have to learn how to pick your battles, right? right. Mm-hmm. I'm not going here with all of y'all all the time. So being able to pick your battles with your family and in your community and use it as times to educate, but take care of yourself and be safe. <laughs> well, and I think you said some, like, I totally agree because I think a lot of people think, you know, whether that's Mary Wollstonecraft as far as like those early feminists, like you're saying, or, you know, or the declaration of sentiments. Like I teach women's mm-hmm. studies and that, that declaration of sentiments always seems to pop up as people think that that's the first time, you know, people were theorizing around it. And I was like, okay, so let's put that juxtaposition with ain't I a woman. And let's think mm-hmm. about the time frame and what was happening historically to add context mm-hmm. to how they're thinking about it. Because oftentimes we think in silos. And I think that's the beautiful thing about intersectionality is that it, it is resistant and hesitant to allow you to think in a silo, but makes you to think, you know, how all of these incorporate and interact. So mm-hmm. that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... My question then would be, um, as who belongs to, you know, many different groups um, and intersecting identities, how do you or how would we continue to show up as our authentic self? Um, no. <laughs> I think, so for that, I, it's again, it's not like prescriptive. So I can't like, you know, give you a list and say, hey, this is what it's going to do. And that's going to, it's they're, you're going to be accepted into that space or you're going to feel welcome. I think it's more about, um, you know, us preparing ourselves to go into that space. So when I think about like us preparing ourselves, I look at our identity development and even looking at it as identity construction. So like it's happening, uh, but we do have a stake in it, right? So we're helping to build our identities. Uh, there's three parts to that. There's the uh, how you identify yourself, and then there's how you see the world. So okay. how you identify yourself, and there's all of the experiences that you have, and combined is your worldview. There's another part of our identity development that we don't always, um, that we, we can't change, and that's the story, the dominant narrative that's already written about us before we walk in the world. Mm-hmm. Those are those stereotypes. Those are those tropes. Right all of that, all of those other people's experiences, but it's going to affect what you get access to and you don't get access to. So we've got to understand that we can't change it, but we've got to understand that that's there before we get there. So we can come in as beautiful and as prepared as we want to be. But if we don't understand what we're walking into, how can we really say that we're prepared to win? So we've got to understand the spaces in which we're going into. And then once we understand that and we're clear on who we are, like before the call, we were talking about self-care and that's why self-care is so important. And we can look at our black feminist literature and we can see how self-care was important to them back then. We just now catching up. We're behind (laughs) as a a sociopolitical culture talking about self-care, but we have to do that because that is radical. Because when you show up somewhere and you've been, you know, working out every day, reading your Bible, drinking your water, whatever that is for you, right? <laughs> whatever your spiritual practice is, but you know what I mean. Right. You're doing what you need to do to keep yourself in a way. And you show up in that space and you are shining like the bright beam of light that you are. And you're attracting all of the other lights in the room. Can't nobody tell you nothing. Nothing mm-hmm. about nothing. Right? Nothing about nothing. And so, and I think, and, and they can't tell you because it's like, oh, they recognize your light, but they can't handle the glare. Or if they get too close, boom, they gonna get burnt up. Like, but either way, you don't even got to worry about it. Your light is taking care of it, right? And so I think it's about us being prepared and knowing that those spaces are not designed for us, let alone not designed for us to exceed. And when we come in, we come in to fuck it up. Like, that's why we're here. We already on the line for our people. Right. So, you know, those spaces, they aren't designed for us to win. They aren't designed for us to be successful. So we've got to know that. So we got to come in ready. We got to come in with our armor on. We got to come in ready for battle. We got to know who's on our team. Now that's you got to be connected to your other people. Yeah. You have to know who's on your side. And that's the painful process. The relationship building, the trust giving, the trust breaking, trying to repair it, figuring out if it's worth it. Like that's the work. That's the relationship work. Yeah, and and like listening to you, 
the thing that came up was burnout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have all of these identities. Mm-hmm. And then when I walk into a space, I want people to see who I am without any assumptions. But we already know when we walk into that space, there's already a narrative that has been created for us. And when we talk about burnout and the jobs that we do in higher ed, and then you have a student that comes in, uh, a young young black female that comes in, and it's like, you have to kind of put on the superwoman identity, yet another identity. And so kind of speak to, as new professionals get into these roles in higher ed, and some of them, let's just be honest, don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do you walk into a space of higher education where you're supposed to help young people figure out who they are when you don't know who you are as a black woman because of what society has put already has already put out there? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's where it comes to the pedagogy. Right. So it's about participating and co-creating a culture that you want right where you are. So while you can't change the world, you can't change the university system in this women's center, in this office, in this multicultural center, in this LGBT center. This is what we're doing right here. Mm. Like, and we're going to take up this space. Um, You know, we talk about place and space, right? Places are physical things. We don't have that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Being black in America, we don't have shit, right? Like, they, they're not giving us nothing. So, you know. we're going to take up some space. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to come in here and we're going to make it feel like this is what we want it to be. So, we're going to put some things on the walls. We're going to have these programs. We're going to have these conversations. We're going to put it on the flyer. So, when we talk about like new professionals who are coming in, it's, I mean, it's important. It's, it's so important for us to do our work. And also, people are traumatized by their programs and they're going right into a tenure track, which is another traumatic process. Right. Uh, another traumatic system. So moving from one system to the next and people aren't doing their work. Um, the unfortunate thing is that's just how it's going to be. We're, we're going to encounter people who are not ready. And that's why, and we can't control them. The only thing that we can control is us. So we know if we ready, we are going to know how to deal with them in that moment. So if we're ready and we're together and we're taking care of ourselves and we're not burning out and we're being honest with our students, our <laughs> students see what's going on. They may not have the, 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 the language to describe it in the way that we do, mm-hmm. but they see what's going on and they experience it. And I think it's about being really honest with them. And I mean, you can't like, you know, tell all the business, but I think it's about saying, you know what's really going on. You see what's happening here. <laughs> My hands are tied. I can't give you all of the information, but I can tell you this, right? And just let them know the truth of it. These well, that's, okay, so are not designed for us. Go ahead. That's a that's a good point. And I and I kind of want to maybe ask a follow-up question to something that you just said. Because sometimes I don't feel like students understand. I don't think that they uh-huh. see sectional. I think that they see, um, especially those that are like black faculty members in a couple different ways. Either your class is about to be easy and you're going to hook me up because we all black. And <laughs> yeah. Or, or that you're going to be harder on me because you are black and so am I, you know, but I'm wondering your thoughts and everybody's thoughts really on do students, I had a very frank conversation with a student today who it was clear that that student had really no real um, insight on really what was going on in the world around them. And so they didn't know a lot of that stuff. So, and this term intersectionality is so, in some respects, high and lofty in that students don't see that as something that they ascribe to or that they even understand because it's not necessarily explained to them, especially if they're in specific disciplines. So our students really understanding to the fact that as faculty or even staff, that they are intersecting identities or is it just like, well, you supposed to be here to work solely for me. Hmm. 
And is that is that mutually exclusive or interchangeable? Mm. You are you teaching undergrads? So I don't actually teach. So I actually lead a, a center, so to speak. So I lead a center where students are taught in that center, as well as it's also a cultural center experience. So it's kind of a, it's, it's a both and type of thing. But even when I do teach classes, students automatically, I mean, students automatically say stuff like, oh, I thought this class was going to be easy. Why? <laughs> like, you are know, they undergraduate students? Undergrad students, yeah. Definitely. That's why. They just came out of, I mean, this is an assumption, right? They just came out of the K-12 system. They don't care nothing about them where all they had to do was show up if they went to public school and they got passed, they didn't really have to apply themselves. They understood how that system worked and that those teachers weren't on their side. So their experience with the education system is coming from K-12, where they weren't given an opportunity to be critical thinkers ever. But when you a senior, when you a senior, I, I yeah. feel some respects that you should have leveled your game up right i agree with you first year students <laughs> i'm gonna give you a pass but if you in my senior class and you telling me stuff like you're not gonna read or can you send me the i had one student ask me can you send me a copy of the book and it was the seventh week of class <laughs> i can't do is give you this f that's what i can do you know what i mean because what can you do but i and so I just, I, I wonder how do we, and maybe that's the better question, how do we explain or get this message of intersectionality to students, you know, earlier in life so that, that especially in their academic careers, what does that look like, you know, from a pedagogy standpoint and also maybe from a, um, I don't know, I want to say programmatic standpoint. I think that they're definitely feeling some of this, but mm -hmm. understand. You know, and I see it in, in some, so uh, this, this huge move, this, I'll say this and then everybody else can kind of chime, hopefully chime in. One of the things that I see, especially in the higher education realm, is that we have a lot of support programs specifically geared towards um, men, be it black men, Latino men, but men. And find women coming to me saying, well, where's the support programs for black women? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. They, they don't exist um, in numbers. I know that they do exist, but it's not necessarily, it is who has the largest issue that we see that they have and how do we address that? But when we look at some of the, these issues of intersectionality, I mean, I do think that you know, men of color do have their own sense of intersectionality. Um, and maybe that's a good question, do they? But how then jockey advocate support those who we know, especially black women? I, I feel like that's the group that's on fire. And also that's what our podcast is about. Amen. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, what? <laughs> right. Um, so I agree that black women, um, I mean, and we can get really specific around, you know. Black and trans women are the ones who are at the, on fire, right? We can we can talk about that's what intersectionality is. It's centering the most marginalized. So I definitely um, agree. Uh, when we think about the support systems that are in place, it's uh, uh, this is unfortunate, but it's our unfortunate reality is that they're government trickle downs. We think about the government's. Uh, what is it? My brother's keeper initiative. Right. Yeah, the baby. Right. My sister's keeper. Even so, I work on a conference uh, called the WPC, the White Privilege Conference, and I've been working on the logistics team, you know, for about fifteen years. And the founder of the conference is a black guy, and so about ten years in, he starts the Black Male Think Tank. Huh. We don't have a black woman think tank? Right, right. No, we don't need a think tank. I mean, no, we'll we, just like No, we'll just stay here on your logistics team working. You know what I mean? Like we'll just Absolutely. stay here, put keep putting you together, like right. leading from the back, like we usually do, right? And mm -hmm. so about three years after that, I was like, I I need a room because we gonna have a black woman think tank. Like y'all and I about to have what y'all have it, and we not gonna have we're taking up <laughs> our space. Scoop over. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's a, it's a trickle down and we live in a patriarchal society. So it, it's just a reflection of all of those things. And it's just about, I think we got to be honest and name them and then fuck it up. And they'd be like, okay, scoot over. I'm coming. So there's the black male think tank and there's the black woman think tank. Now say something else. Right. You yeah. know, and I think like with our students and, um, like getting it to them early, I think it's about, um, like you said, pedagogy. So there is a, um, a pedagogy scholar. His name is Dr. Christopher Enden. Are you all familiar with his work? <laughs> okay. Okay. He has a book. It's called For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood. And the rest of y'all too. <laughs> it's downstairs <laughs> on my bookcase. I will show it to you. It's not on my bookcase. But yes, yeah, so his name is Christopher Emden, E-M-D-I-N, and the book is called For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood. But so he is um one of my mentors and he teaches teachers at Columbia. And the thing is, you can't say that you can teach black kids and you don't love black kids. You don't mm-hmm. love black kids unless you know them and you know what they come from and what their struggle is on a daily basis. And you know what their culture is and you know how to reach them. Uh, And so he talks about uh, different uh, pedagogical strategies to use in the classroom. Like one of them is cogens or co-generative dialogues, where you start off, you identify your leaders, you know, three or four student leaders in the group, and you identify them. You ask them to stay five minutes after class or meet you five minutes early. And you ask them, what's the pulse? Like, what's the word? Uh, people like the class, how they like it, they in, they out, what they want to learn. They tell you, you put it into the lesson. Students pay attention. It's like, oh, wait a minute. We were just talking about that and I was on the board. It's almost like Google. <laughs> it's disambiguation. <laughs> and so, and then that process, you continue that process and you sub in one student for another student. So you ask one student, say, hey, okay, um, you want to ask somebody to take your place in the cogent? Think about it. Let me know tomorrow, right? And they'll come back to you and they'll be like, okay, you know, Dr. K, we want so-and-so to come and sub in on the cogent. And they'll come and because it'll be this cool thing right. that they're creating. Eventually, they get to create the lesson, right? Because they right. see the process. They're paying attention. They see that you care about them and what they want to learn and making sure that they're receiving the information. So I think it's about like just being honest with our students. We've got to be really honest with them about the things that we can't control and the things that we can and say there are some things that we can't control and we can control what happens in this room so we're going to set some um you know in uh dr emden's work he talks about a cipher like a norming cipher like i know uh learning spaces have rules ground rules community agreements you and using a hip-hop pedagogy you call it a cipher and you talk about what's in the cipher and what you want in the cipher and what you want outside. And so it's a way to set those community norms, but not doing it in this uh, Eurocentric view. It's taking the world that they live in and making it relevant to the information that you want them to have. So there are ways to do that. And it seems so simple, like, to begin to do that. But that's something that you do in an early meeting with young people, and you kind of got them. they like, mm-mm, she different. What's she about to do? Right. You know, and they start to pay attention a little more and you can catch their ear with different things or, you know, just differentiating. Like in class, we did a close read the other day and I asked them, I said, have you ever done a close read? And there's some of them are seniors and they've never done it. And so we watched a Beyonce video and printed out the lyrics and said, where do you see black feminist iterations? (laughs) I like that though. They were all, we're going to watch. Yes, we are. We're going to, you know, and so it, cause it's in our world, it's in our lives, but we've got to make sure that it's relevant to them. And I think as educators, and now I'm speaking as an educator, it's our duty to do that. We yeah. have to curate the space for them because they don't know. Look at where they're coming from. Look well, at all the other people that you work with on your campus. You know they don't know. <laughs> right. Well, and I kind of want to, and, and you said, you said something earlier that kind of made me want to, uh, kind of go back 
um, kind of even in the conversation of, you know, there's, there's things for, you know, men and we also, you know, with feminism, it's traditionally hegemonic and white whiteness and white femaleness in the ways that that looks at, but you know, but Crenshaw in her mapping the margins, like literally talks about that as far as like, that's why. And that kind of brings me back to one of the questions that we had is that, how can we be intentionally intersectional in practice? And like, what would that look like? Because I think, I think so many times when you, when you think about intersectionality, unfortunately it's turned into a buzzword and there's just a miscommunication in the ways that intersectionality is understood. Because I think the, I mean, kind of like stepping away from the additive, like, okay, so it's, it's gender, it's, it's sexuality, it's race, it's this, it's that, but it's not additive. And I think that's the confusion. So then how then, can we be inter intentionally intersectional in the practice that we do, whether that is in student affairs practice, whether that's in higher ed practice, like, and how can we be really cognizant of intergroup differences, which is what she really pushes in that mapping the margins. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I think about three things. The first thing I think is we have to, you know, do our own work and that's our own identity development work and know where, we're strong and know where we're not and not put ourselves in situations that are triggers for us, right? So being able to do our own work, I think that's really, really key. We can't support anyone else if we are not well. So right. we've got to be well and that in itself is revolutionary. Um, next, it's about centering the most marginalized like we were talking about. Um, you know, so whether it's decentering your own perspective or centering the most marginalized, however, whatever view you want to take on it, I think that's how we look and see who are the others, right? And how can we welcome them into this space? So when we begin to get away from ourselves and think about who's the most marginalized and looking around in the space and saying, are they here? Are their voices represented? And then saying, okay, what's my role? How do I get them here? Right. And I mean, it is not, and knowing that it's not just your work alone, it's with that team there. But the key, I think, to that team is accountability. So holding yourself accountable, but then holding the people that you are in community with and who are who make up that table with you to invite those people and holding them accountable. And how do you do that? You know, that's raising your voice, that's saying something in meetings, that's making sure that students have access to opportunities. Um, it's nominating students for awards. It's um, sharing information like... Um, you had the student who asked about the textbook, right? And it's like, yo, if you just had it came to me and had a conversation with me straight up at the beginning, yeah, I would have gave you the textbook, probably. <laughs> <laughs> right? Probably, right? You know. <laughs> but it, it's and you know, it's modeling the way. So when they see you in the behavior as it should be, it's easier for other people to test it out and try it on. Right. So when you are behaving in a way in which you're you're speaking about or you're writing about or your programs are designed to, you know, you've got to stay in that way, too. And that says more than anything else that you could really do. And you said something that that once again stood out to me being at the table. And so for me, when I go to a table, a committee meeting or whatever the case is, I always let people know when I come to the table, I'm more than just me because I'm representing people that can't be at the table. One, because you haven't invited them. Two, because not enough space or whatever the case may be. So when I come to the table, I come with a lot of different intersecting identities that may not be my own. Right. But I support who they are in their own identity. And right. then there's that whole piece of accountability, right? Um, many times people want to be at the table, right? Because whatever reason, but when they get there, they don't say anything. And that's what bothers me because I'm going to say something. So I got to the point where people ask me, can you be on this committee? Can you do this? I'm like, you sure you want that? Cause you know, when I come, I'm coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and for me, when I come, I come, with, <laughs> yeah, I, I come with the students in mind because I'm not doing my work for you all. I'm doing it for the students 
that we need to persist and graduate and so that he can get into the real world and you know be law-abiding citizens so to speak and so for me you know a lot of my um education has been at pwis right and so i'm used to being the only um, black person in the space but now i work at an institution uh, hbcu where students they're not used to that but they're going into workplaces where they're the only black person. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do I show up as my authentic self and all that I am in this arena? And I believe that me personally, when you talk about creating those spaces that you want, that when students come into my space, I, I educate them on how do you continue to be who you are, all the identities, and still be around people that don't look like you or don't act like you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're doing it. Don't ask me nothing. You're doing it. (laughs) Right? So you're, you are, you know, doing your work, right? Which you're doing that. So you understanding that you got the community with you at the table. And you're saying that, okay, so I'm at these tables and I'm here with these students, but what these students are experiencing here, they're not going to experience outside of here. Exactly. So you're modeling for them the way to be that they can be comfortable where they are, but that you know will let them be safe at a minimum outside of here. Yeah. That's what you did. Just said you was doing. I just repeated it in different words. I just need more people to do it though. <laughs> Validation. I just need more people to do it, you know? That that's the key for me. I agree. I agree with that. I I think that in higher education, we don't have, I mean, honestly, that's, that's a huge issue, you know, and that creates an overtaxing on those of us that do, right, to sit in a room and to constantly be that person. And then they start terming you the angry, the like the over opinionated. Well, that's my job. Like that's, I mean, that's part, it's not my job to be angry, but it's my job to be in these rooms and, and be an advocate. And actually I have started to explain that to students. It's my job to advocate for you in rooms that you are not necessarily invited to or are able to be in. And it's your job to advocate for yourself and those rooms that you are. Absolutely. And, and I think that we don't have enough of that. We, especially especially in higher education and depending on what your institution's standpoint meaning what do those in administration or leadership what does your culture determine Mm -hmm. also plays a part in how much you can say you have people that are on Mm -hmm. something afraid to say anything for fear they're gonna lose their job Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean i think and and they're trying to advocate for students which is what for sure supposed to be doing i thought and maybe I'm wrong. But I, you know what, though? I feel like if we don't show up in the ways that we should, um, mm-hmm. we not, not only are our students missing out, but so are we. Like, I think I remember, uh, I, I'm about the audiobook's life. And was it um, Eloquent Rage? If y'all have looked at that, come through. That book gave me life. And I did the audiobook, so I heard her reading it to me. It was like, she was talking directly to me because as women, let's think intersectionally, like as women and as black, you know, women and black people, there's this idea of respectability politics and, you know, oh, don't talk too loud. Don't piss this person off. Don't do this. Don't do that. Fit in this little box. But at the end of the day, my silencing myself, my shrinking myself doesn't do anything else for anybody else, but that kills me a little bit every day. Stripping those stripping me of who I am that makes me, you know, the ability, the person that can speak up, you know, in those rooms. And I think that kind of circles back to that conversation of activist burnout, student like burnout within the the ways that we do intersectionally. Um, But I don't think that we have enough of those conversations because there does need to be more people in those spaces speaking up. There do, there definitely does. And let me just say, Higher ed is no different than nonprofit, is no different than the medical healthcare sector, is no different than for profit, no different than legal. Like white privilege, white supremacy, and whiteness is everywhere. And it's um, implicit in every system that we operate in in this Western world that's capitalistic. So it, it's there. And there will be people who are people of color or who identify as minoritized populations 
who will not be for people of color or minoritized populations. Right. And I mean, that's just the facts. And we can debate on why, but that ain't my business. <laughs> like why why people need their health care is up to them. Right. You know, like, okay, you need your health care. Okay, that's cool. Right. I I, I I can't compete with that. All I know is what Valerie was saying is that there is a sense of urgency for our people to get liberation right now. That's all I know. Like, that's the identity development part that you can't change. Like, you got to know that they're out there. But, like, it, and, and I don't think it's our role to, to change them. Like, it, we can't take them away into the boot camp and pump them out, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, I mean, that's what, I mean, for, now. Nah, I don't think that we can do that for, like, professional adults. But I do think that we can do that for students. Right. So let's be clear. So I don't think that we can do that for our colleagues, but for our students, I think that we can. But it's just like we've just got to know that they're there. But I think that there's a book by a guy out of Baltimore. His name is Lester Spence, and he teaches at the University of Maryland. And he has a line in his book that says there's not as many of us as there should be, but there's more of us than we think there are. Mm. Wow. Um, um, and I, and we're only gonna find each other when 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 we are shining, right? Yeah, that we're gonna find each other when we're activated. If we're not activated, that we dull and we don't know what's going on, and we're not tuned in, or we're depressed, and we're not doing our self care, and we're not eating right, and we're not getting enough sleep. Right, we're not going to be able to in those moments to be like, okay, I'm supposed to, my antennas are supposed to be up, I'm going to find my people here, right? Or we're not going to have the energy to go to the event or to go across campus to the women of color thing because we're exhausted or because we're bogged down with work from our department, right? So we've got to begin to prioritize ourselves. It goes back to that self-care. So being able to prioritize yourself so that you can be ready because this is like, I'm going to use an analogy. It's a little uh, 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 visual, but we are on the front lines, right? Those of us, I live in Ohio and there is a bill that just passed effective in 2020, August 2020, educators in one school district can arm themselves. Like educators are going to have guns. Classroom teachers, K-12 will have guns. Wow. Our front lines. What's that line in uh, wow. uh, higher learning where Ice Cube be like, we behind enemy lines, dog. Like yeah. are. Yeah, we are like this is front line. So we have to be prepared while we out there. It's not a game. And by prepared, like Dr. Emden, he said degrees all the way up. You have some people with their degrees all the way up. They have all their certifications, all their theories. They know all that stuff, but they don't know what's really going on. And so are they really prepared? Are they really prepared to educate our young people? Are they really prepared to lead us through this time that we are in sociopolitically? Are they really prepared to lead in the wake of Black Lives Matter? Like, that's the reality of this situation. And we know that, which is why we are here. But at the same time, we've got to make sure to fortify ourselves for the long haul. Because those, there were people who came before us and there are people who are coming after us. Mm -hmm. So we are only holding the line. Yes. Yeah. But in order to hold it, we got to be ready. Like, right. And, you know, I think, well, and, and we, we uh, you know, I have the final, you know, the final couple of questions um, as we close. But it's some, something so powerful about fortifying yourself for the next and stand and remembering that you're not going to be here forever. Mm -hmm. There's going, there's people who, and to remember that our students are watching us and that people are watching us and they see, are watching you and they see, oh, well, they're taking on a burden. Okay. I, I know that they, you know, stay until 11 o'clock at night and doing all these things. And so maybe that's how it should be. But I think like, I think the only way that we can really start to change is model the behavior that should be there, even though it isn't there. Um, 
But kind of going into that fortifying yourself and and storing all that up and protecting yourself for the for the work on those battle lines, on those on those four lines, four front lines. What is as we're putting together podcasts, we're putting together like music that we are using as fuel so that we can kind of, you know, get our lives together, whether that is, you know, Kendrick Lamar or Beyonce or Marvin Sapp, but something so like what is 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 there music right now that you're listening to that's like fueling you that you're just like yeah I can keep going or something like this just kind of stirring your spirit right now like what is that let us know so we can add that to the list to encourage others um yes <laughs> I love music um uh you know the first thing that I'm going to say just because it is top of mind and she is everything that there is was and forever <laughs> will be uh, Queen King B Beyonce. Uh, I love Beyonce. One, one, one. <laughs> my kids watch Homecoming with me. Uh, I this is my third time, but this is the first time. <laughs> my youngest son is nine. He was not on it. He was like, "Is it over? How many more performances is it?" <laughs> okay, so well, Beyonce. <laughs> right. <laughs> he wasn't ready. Okay, this so all I told songs. All her songs. I mean, I just want to be clear. It's, it's like, well, that's gonna be a long playlist. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, I'll say lemonade, right? So, really specifically around just her, her growth and her evolution. Uh, you know, yeah. I I would say lemonade. I say that. Um. But I want to add a couple more artists to the list. Um. The first one is Maimuna Yusuf, uh, you, or she's known as Mumu Fresh. I will type yes! it in the comments. Yes! <laughs> okay. Listen, yeah. she's phenomenal. Uh, so dope. Uh, Mumu Fresh is dope. So I've never had the pleasure of meeting her, but I know people who have met her and they say that she's so dope in real life too. <laughs> like what like, song of hers? Um, she has, um, she has an album, her latest, she's getting ready to drop a new album, like within the next couple of weeks, but the album before that came out, I think in 2016, and it's called Vintage Babies. And so she actually has a song on there called Sandra Bland, where she talks about, you know, if I should die tomorrow at the hands of the policeman, uh, you know, what would you do? Uh, and say my name. And she talks about, you know, say my name it's beautiful beautifully written um and then another um song that i love to listen to is uh the uh, the uh the author uh, i'm such a book nerd <laughs> the uh artist is mona hadar so she is a uh middle eastern woman who I met, I didn't meet her. I learned about her through some work that I was doing, but she's a hip hop artist and she has a song called Hijab. And she talks about rapping her hijab and there's a video and she has all these beautiful women of color and they're all covered and they're all wrapped. And oh, wow. yeah, and then she has this EP it's called Barbarican, where she talks about big, you know, she's an American, but, you know, her family's serious. She covers, she talks about being Muslim. I mean, it's amazing. Um, but so her name is Mona, M-O-N-A, Hadar, H-A-Y-D-A-R, and the song is called Rap My Hijab. And there's a video for that, too. It's really cool. Okay. Awesome. All right. Okay. So we will, those, those are going to be added to the wonderful list. I like it. So uh, just, if you could just tell us what do you, what does this space, um, this podcast space, this community, this, these conversations that we're having right now, what does this uh, podcast black women voices mean to you? Um, I think it means everything to me. I'm so excited for this space. I love it. Like we are here to take up space. Like let's do it. We have to create, we have to take up this space. We have to, we have to connect to one another to do that fortifying we were talking about, to lift each other up. Uh, I, when I, that's why when I saw it, I said, 
what can I do? How can I help? How can I support? That's the work that I do here. I run programs with women of color on campus, off campus, girls. We write books. We do whatever. Like, I'm here to help amplify the message of my people. So however I can do that, I'm down. And like I was saying before, I want y'all to keep going. Like, keep going. They don't want us to be here. Take up the space. Scoot over. Like, I'm here. Scoot over. <laughs> If you don't scoot over, we'll run you over. Okay. <laughs> I'ma sit on you both. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and lastly, um uh thinking about um the woman that we asked for you to uh mention in the podcast, um, if you could tell us a black woman that you would like to celebrate, because not only are we gonna share it here, but also on our social social media. We are going to share some information about that person who you want to honor. So who is that? Who's that black woman of power? All right. So that black woman is Sojourner True, who I believe is the mother of the feminist movement with her speech in Akron, Ohio. That's about 30 miles from where I am right now. Shout out to Ohio. 1851, ain't I woman? Excellent choice. Like... That's one of my speeches. And plus, I mean, I love when people do renditions of it, but there's nothing like reading the the the, the piece itself. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Kind of the intonations, the inflections, mm -hmm. all of that. Mm -hmm. I love it. I've seen it done in the One Woman show, and it was amazing. <gasps> oh, no, that would be awesome to do. Mm. Yeah. We just appreciate you and just thank you for your time. And yeah, do you have anything, the last words you want to kind of leave with the podcast family? Um, so I just want to say thank you. I really appreciate you guys uh, holding the space initially, but then also inviting me into the space. I want to encourage you all. I know I keep saying it, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I need to say it one more time uh, so it can, it can beat out all the times where you say, I ain't doing this no more, right? right. <laughs> so all the keep goings matter. But I really want you all to continue to do the work that you are doing because it is important. Because there are young people, there are young women, young black women, other young women of color who need to see you doing that work. They need to see you. In the Beyonce homecoming documentary, there was a quote from Marion Wright Edelman that said, you can't be what you can't see. Uh -huh. I got chills Ooh. right there. Come on. Can I just say that you are so purposed? I mean, not to get spiritual, but to get spiritual because it's in us at all times and in all things. But you're so purposed though, because mm -hmm. when I tell you that was exactly what I as well as my sisters on this podcast um, <laughs> needed to hear right now. Well, if, if all things all don't work together for the good, I on. just want to say thank you. I really do. Because I, I do believe, as you're saying, that like we, we don't get into, into these spaces on our own. And it's our, the onus is on us to remember to reach back and reach up and pull up mm -hmm. so that others can do it too. Agree, agree. And like I was a name drop is not like a name drop thing. It's those are the people who hope to pull me through. Right? I, I wouldn't be here without people like Dr. June Christian and my chair, Dr. Crystal Clemens, and those are black women that I know. So I hear you and I feel you and I want you guys to continue doing the good work. We got you. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of Black Women Voices. Remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Black Women Voices.